Hey, everybody, and welcome to another MyJS story. This week, we have Bob Zeitman. Bob, do you want to say hi? Hi, everybody. Um, now, you were on episode 238, which is actually fairly recent. Some of the people I've had on the show, it's like, yeah, you were on like three years ago. <laughs> but this is kind of fun because, you know, hopefully people listen to your episode not that long ago. And they're like, oh, yeah, that was really interesting talking about intellectual property and software forensics and all that stuff um, on episode 238. Um, do you want to just give a brief introduction as to who you are and what you what you do? Because I, I find that fascinating, and then we can kind of get into these questions about how you got into programming and things. Sure, thanks for having me on the show. And uh, yeah, I do. I actually do a lot of things, but the main thing the uh, the thing that pays the bills these days is the software forensics, which uh, I got into kind of accidentally. Uh, as I seem to get into most things that are successful for me, which is a little bit frustrating. But uh, I was working on starting a company and asked a, uh, a Stanford professor who I'd worked for at his startup company if he wanted to invest. And he said no, but uh, he was testifying in a case involving trade secrets and he needed someone to do some research. And uh, he told me how much it paid and I said, I'm in. And started doing this as a nice way. Of, on a, I, I had been a consultant for years designing hardware and software. And I started doing more and more of the intellectual property stuff, and I would use it to build up some capital and then fund a, a startup company I'd try to get off the ground. Uh, and then when I'd either fail at the startup or sell the intellectual property of the startup, uh, I would then go back to consulting on intellectual property cases, you know, patent lawsuits, trade secrets, copyrights. And then uh, in order to make the work more interesting, I started writing tools to uh, software tools to help with my analysis. And the first time I did that, some lawyers uh, said, hey, how are you getting through these, uh, th this code so quickly? And I said, oh, I wrote this little utility program. And they said, oh, can we get a copy of it? And I said, sure. And I sent it to them and then stopped hearing from them for weeks. And I finally called <laughs> them up and I said, what's happening? They said, oh, we're using your tool. It's great. Uh, so they didn't need me anymore. <laughs> so I started, uh, so the next time I created a tool and the lawyer said that, I said, sure, you can license it from me for a fee. And they were happy to do that. And the fee started going up and I spun it off into my software forensics company. And so now my consulting company has been expanding and my software forensics company is a nice, uh, it's got some nice revenue from the tools I developed. And, and I'm really proud of the algorithms that I developed for them and, um, so that's how I got into software forensics specifically and IP litigation. Very cool. Very, very cool. Are you trying to figure out how to stay current with Ruby and Rails? I'm putting on a two day online conference called Ruby Remote Conf. You can check it out at rubyremoteconf.com. Like I said, it's a two-day conference where you can come and listen to speakers and experts from all around the world talk to you about issues pertaining to Ruby and web development. We have an online Slack channel, a roundtable discussion on Zoom, and all of the talks are given over Google Hangouts, and all of the talks will be streamed to you live. Come check us out at rubyremoteconf.com. Well, um, I'm going to back us up just a little bit. So uh, rewind back to young Bob, Bob Zeidman. Uh, how did you get into programming? Sure. So uh, I remember that when I was young, I was always fascinated by computers. And I had a lot of 
information. I'd send away to companies for information on their computers. And when I got into eighth grade, my high school started in eighth grade. It was a combination of junior high and high school back in Philadelphia, George Washington High School. And they had a terminal. It was an HP, no, sorry. It was a teletype. It, it was, I think, Teledyne teletype that connected through an acoustic coupler over the phone lines to an HP 2000 owned by the school district. And it was in this tiny cramped book closet surrounded by books, just enough room for the teletype and shelves of books. And I walked in and there was this young man there. He was old to me. He was a senior. I was in eighth grade, Scott Silverstein. I still remember his name. And uh, he was sitting there typing and I asked him what he was doing and he was writing a program to make the computer do stuff. And I said, wow, what, what can it do? And he typed in date and it printed out the date and he typed in time and it printed out the time on these big terminal, big teletypes. I'm sure, Jack, that you remember these. Well, I don't know if you're old. <laughs> I don't know how old you are. So maybe I'm not old enough. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Um, I'm just a baby. Yeah. Baby these programmer. things, these things, when they were going, they would rattle and shake and make a lot of noise. You could hardly talk over them. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought, you know, th to me, that was like the machine communicating. <laughs> it just seemed like you knew it was doing something. And it printed out the date and time, which I look back was such a simple thing to do. But I was fascinated. And I thought, I want to learn how to use these, how to program these machines. And I never thought that I'd understand how to program or how to, or how, the electronics in them. I thought it was way beyond my comprehension, but eventually I did. But in, so in junior, starting in eighth grade, I started writing, I'd, I'd get time on the computer and I'd write these basic programs and I became really obsessed with it. And I would, you had to sign up for time. I'd sign up for time. Eventually by senior year, I wrote an interpreter for my own computer language and an operating system that ran in interpreted basic. So on an HP 3000, they'd upgraded to an HP 3000. So it was really slow, but I thought it was the coolest thing. And because you'd only get like an hour at a time on the teletype, I would print out, this is what most people did. I think they, we'd print out our programs and it was one long file. I remember it's one long file. So you'd print it out. It would be multiple feet of paper and then you'd roll it up and take it home. And then I'd spend nights and weekends with a pen going through it and debugging in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say, okay, if A is zero here, and then it goes through this and this, and now B is set to one, and now A is subtracted from B, and I'd be writing this stuff down. And then I'd figure out, oh, I, I meant to add B, not subtract B. So then I'd have to wait until I got back to school and change the, you know, add to subtract or whatever it was and uh, then rerun the program. And if I didn't get the right results, I'd have to print it out and go home again and spend the evening uh, mentally debugging the program. But I also taught myself, uh, I didn't teach myself good debugging techniques until much later, I think, but I taught myself structured programming because I get so frustrated. I, I have go-tos all over the place and I hate go-tos now for this reason, because I have go-tos and you have these long, you oh, know, yeah. the paper was spread over my dining room table and he'd be going back and forth and climbing over the table. 
And I say, okay, go to this routine. Where the heck is this routine? And I'd skim through the whole program and I couldn't find the routine. So I have to skim through it again. And eventually as I wrote more code, I started doing subroutines and I started organizing them so that they were at the end of the file in alphabetical order. Um, you know, so I could do all this. So that was the, the start. I guess I can tell you. This uh, reminds me of like my parents, you know, my, my mom was a math major and my dad was a chemical engineering major until he changed majors and did pre-dental. Now he's a dentist. Um, but, uh, yeah, they talk about the cards, right. And you'd feed the cards in and yeah, yeah, I I mean, I can just imagine, you know, trying to debug this on paper. I mean, now we just open up the, up the debugger, insert a breakpoint and then say, run until you stop. And then it stops and you say, okay, now, um, what's going on here? Okay. Step to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. But, oh, man, I, I mean, I can't even imagine print the code out and then debug it on paper, right? <laughs> Though I, I, I did do some embedded programming in college, and, mm. and that was sort of like that, right? Where you'd run it, and it would come back, and, you know, it would just fail silently. And right. so then, yeah, you would dig through the code. You, you could usually check what was in the registers, and so then it's like, okay, well, I think it got this far. <laughs> right? Right, right. And the go-to commands are like the jump commands for the chips, and so, yeah. Right. And actually, I a few years ago, I hired somebody out of school, and I've also interviewed a bunch of people. I don't know if this is common, but mm-hmm. somebody I hired was a decent programmer but didn't know how to debug, so I'm not even sure they teach the right way. She was doing it kind of like I did, except with print statements. And I said, why don't you set a breakpoint, and then you can examine what's going on in the code. And she'd say, well, we, we were taught to do print statements and just print out, <laughs> which is a little better than paper and pencil, but well, I no. use, yeah, I, I get that. And I think in college we were just kind of the same place. I use print statements. If I think I know where the answer or where the problem is and I just want to verify it, but yeah. Yeah. I, I sometimes do that to narrow down where I think the problem is. Mm-hmm. In fact, I do that a lot. I'll print out statements throughout. I'll put in print statements because I have no idea where it's failing, but once I find where it's failing, if I can narrow it down, then I start putting in, uh, breakpoints and I guess it depends on the program and the environment. Yes, it does. But still, yeah, I'm with you on that. It also depends on whether or not you have a convenient visual debugger or, you know, in Ruby, I'd use a command line system called pry. And, Mm -hmm. uh, so it would just pause the execution and then give you a terminal into the program. So you had a Mm -hmm. REPL right there in the middle of the thing. Um, because I wasn't using a visual debugger, but yeah, um, same kind of idea. It's just that you have to examine it programmatically. You have to give it commands. Okay, show me what this variable is. Right. And, you know, I don't recall if I just didn't think about putting in print statements. We didn't have debuggers. I don't know if I didn't think about putting in print statements. I think it's more likely that I did put them in. But if you only had an hour on the computer, uh-huh. uh, you know, like I said, I'd print it out and go home. And I didn't have a computer at home. We, we actually didn't have computers in our houses. Yep. So pencil and paper was the only way of doing it at that point. But so, so one of the thing I'll tell you, and I don't know why I loved, I love, I mean, I really loved programming to this day. I think most programmers do. There's something that's great about the immediate feedback to know whether something's working or not. But uh, what would happen is uh, some of the funny things that were interesting things were, 
I discovered that if I reserved the last hour in school uh, to work on the computer, that I could stay as long as I as as I wanted to. Uh, you're not supposed to, but I got to know the security guard. The security guard would come by, and I got to know him, became friends with him, and he just say, "What are you doing?" I said, "I'm programming." He said, "Okay." And uh, a couple of things. Sometimes I I get so caught up in what I was doing that it would get dark outside and I'd miss the bus home. And uh, in fact, sometimes the doors were locked. You had to find the right, there was one door that like an emergency exit that I learned. You had to go around the school to the one door that wasn't chained up that you could actually get out of. <laughs> and there was nobody in the building. And my mom would get upset. I, in fact, sometimes I knew if I heard police cars uh, <laughs> coming to the school, that it was time for me to go because my mom had called the police and didn't know where I was or what was. <laughs> <laughs> and she'd say, I mean, it'd be like, you know, six, seven at night, but school let out at three o'clock or no, it let right. out at like one forty-five. And, uh, she'd get upset. She'd say, I, you know, give me the phone number of the computer room so I can call you. And I tried to explain to her that we use the phone to connect to the computer, but she didn't really get it. So I gave her the phone number and she'd complain every time I call, the line is busy. So Because <laughs> I'm using uh, it, Mom. Right. She didn't <laughs> quite get that. She also, by the way, I'll tell you, my mom will hate, hates this story, but um, I told her, you know, I want to be a computer programmer when I grow up. And uh, she'd tell me, we have programmers in the office. She worked for the state government. She said, and they don't have degrees. They, they didn't graduate. Some of them didn't graduate from high school. They don't, they make almost just above minimum wage. I don't want you doing this. And I tried to explain that those weren't programmers. They were probably data entry people. Uh-huh. But she insisted that I, she didn't want me, she wanted me going to college and getting a good job. And so years later, I, I explained to her that, you know, Bill Gates was doing the same thing I was doing, but his mom probably said it was okay to be a programmer. <laughs> um, <laughs> I could have been Bill Gates. There you go. But, but here's a, so here's a story I mentioned before we got on. There's a story that I haven't told publicly, which I think is <laughs> pretty interesting. Uh, so I'll tell you here for the first time publicly. Uh, so I told you, I used to stay late at school programming, um, to get in as much time as I could. And they'd shut off the lights in the building, except for some emergency lights. And they'd lock the doors. And so one time I was there pretty late. And I had to go to the bathroom really badly. But I had to just finish that last line of code and debug that last bug in the program. And it got to the point where I couldn't wait any longer. So the lights were off in the building, except for these emergency lights. And I made my way down the hallway and the boys room was locked. And I remembered that they had started locking the boys rooms because some kids were smoking in there, I think. And you had to ask the teacher for a key, but there were no teachers around and all the boys rooms in the school were locked. So nobody was in the school. So I went into the girls room. And there were no lights on in there. They didn't have emergency lights in the bathroom, in the bathrooms. Um, and this was an emergency as mm -hmm. far as I was concerned. So um, I just felt my way around, felt my way into a stall. Um, 
<laughs> aimed in the general direction and relieved myself. And then went back to the computer debugging and finally went home. And the next morning when I got into school, they made an announcement over the loudspeaker and they said, uh, they stopped, you know, all the classes for this announcement. And they said, we, we're really ashamed of the girls in the school. Oh no. They said, we want, we want you to all sometime today, go up to the girl's room on the third floor. That's was the one right by the computer room. And they said, and see what happened in there. And think about what you're doing and how, and how none of, how somebody doesn't have any respect for the school. And it went on and on. Oh no. I have no idea what I did. I, I thought everything was okay, but I was the only one who ever knew that whatever had happened was almost certainly something I had done. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs> oh, so yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so what, what languages were you programming back way back then? So I, uh, I taught myself basic. Um, I got the basic manuals from HP, taught myself basic until I knew every piece of it. And then I think when I was in 10th grade, I could, we had one computer programming class in school. It was an elective, but you had to be in 10th grade. So in 10th grade, I took it. So in that closet, same closet, we had a PDP 8S and a couple of teletypes connected to it. So I learned something called FOCAL, which stood for formula calculator. So I taught, so I learned that in the class and I used that to make a psychological evaluation program. I remember where you'd answer a bunch of questions and it would tell you what your, you know, what psychological issues you had, if any. And, uh, also in my spare time, I learned APL. This was actually kind of interesting. So do you know APL? I don't, I've seen some of the code and it looks really strange. (laughs) Yeah. You know, when I first started programming it, I loved math. And I still love math, but APL allows you to do all kinds of matrix algebra and all kinds of math using these strange symbols, mm-hmm. these mathematical symbols. And you can just put, you can do an entire matrix calculation on a single line of code with just a few characters. And I initially thought that was so powerful. Eventually I decided it was just way too hard to understand. I couldn't read anybody else's code. Right. But I thought this is so cool. And uh, I taught myself uh, to use it. And then I found out that, uh, oh, I can't think of his name, Ken Iverson. Ken Iverson, the, the inventor of APL, mm-hmm. worked at IBM in Philadelphia where I lived. And so what I did was I called him up and I said, I'm a high school student and I taught myself APL and I'd love to meet you. Is there any way we could meet? And he, this was in the days when programmers didn't get any attention. And he was just so flattered and surprised. I mean, I remember when I came to see him, he invited me to his office and I was so thrilled. And he didn't understand why a high school student would want to meet a computer programmer. Uh, But he (laughs) he showed me, he showed me some APL stuff and he showed me the very first personal computer, which was an IBM, I forget a 5100, I think it was called. Mm-hmm. And it was just really, I, I was amazed because computers were at least refrigerator size. And this was something that sat on his desktop and ran APL. So, uh, so I taught myself APL. I, I actually also got a job at the University of Pennsylvania. 
I'm, I'm happy to say that I decided to send uh, letters out to all the universities in the area to see if I could get a summer job writing software. And the only one who responded was the head of the department at University of Pennsylvania. And he invited me in and he was also confused. Like, why does a high school student want to spend his summer programming? But he said, if I would wire up a bunch of uh, serial cables that they needed to connect terminals to computers, uh, then they would give me free reign on all their computers. I could write any code I wanted to. So I spent the mornings soldering cables together. And in the afternoons, I wrote, uh, I, I taught myself, let's see, well, I used APL on some of the computers. And I think I taught myself Fortran. That's right, Fortran. And I tried to, I did a biorhythm program I was going to sell. I don't, do you know biorhythms? Mm-mm. Oh, see, that's, it was really big among programmers back. So this was all, I hate to say it, it was like 40 years ago. But 40 years ago, uh, there was this fad, I would say, called biorhythms, where supposedly you could predict people's moods based on certain rhythms, certain cycles. And based on their birthday, you could figure out which part of the cycle they were in. And then you could, it was really more like fortune telling, oh, today you're going to feel good and you should go for a jog and eat something healthy. You know? <laughs> but next week you're going to be in your down cycle, you, you know, your mental down cycle, but your physical up cycle. So you're going to be kind of energetic, but in a bad way, you know, try not to be too destructive. <laughs> so it was really easy to calculate these cycles and people started making programs and I was going to sell them. So I made a program to calculate people's biorhythms and tell them, predict their moods. But I had no idea where to sell it. In those days, there was no internet. You know, you couldn't, you know, there were magazines and you could place an ad in a magazine, but that was expensive. So I ended up not doing anything with it except giving it out to friends or calculating my friend's biorhythms. He'd print it out and show them and we all go, oh, yeah, that day I wasn't feeling good. Look, it predicted it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I did that at University of Pennsylvania um, and met a lot of really cool people, you know, other programmers. And, oh, and also a friend of mine was in a summer program at Drexel University. And we would take the subway, uh, we'd take the L, actually the elevated train, the bus and the L downtown. And he'd get off at Drexel and I'd get off at University of Pennsylvania and, but the interesting thing is, uh, sometimes I realized that I could go with him to Drexel where they had these punch card machines. They had a Burroughs B5500. And I think that also took Fortran. And <laughs> I would just hang out with him sometimes when I didn't have anything to do at University of Pennsylvania. I'd hang out with him at Drexel and everybody thought I was in the program. You had to, I don't know if you had to pay for the program or get into it. But I'd hang out in the computer center and I'd just punch cards, little programs, and I'd have them, the computer run them. You know, you'd give it to a person behind the desk and then you'd wait an hour or a half hour or whatever and they'd give you back a printout from your program. You'd look it over, fix up the cards and resubmit them. But the funny thing was nobody knew I wasn't in the program. I just hung out there and they figured <laughs> since I was writing code, I must be in the program. Nice. Yeah. So... So it sounds like, yeah, you've kind of had these adventures, you know, growing up in programming. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about, you know, on JavaScript, Java about JavaScript. Um, yeah. 
and we didn't really talk much about your your history with JavaScript or you know what you've done with it. Have, have you done a lot with JavaScript, or has your work been mainly focused in other areas? Well, I have done work with JavaScript. Uh, you know, mostly since so in in 1999, I started an e-learning company called the Chalkboard Network. And that was around the time that Java and JavaScript started getting a lot of publicity and being really big. I was, uh, now I know that people don't like conflating the two, Mm -hmm. uh, but in my mind, it, it wasn't clear where one began and the other ended at that time. So I do know that I was doing some consulting work at Cisco in 99, uh, or at least in the nineties. And, uh, Oh, you know, the inventor of Java, whose name slips my mind. Um, I don't remember either. Yeah. I have uh, this computer right in front of me, though. Yeah. Um, he came to Cisco and gave a talk, and it sounded really cool what you could do with Java and JavaScript. James Gosling. Yes, that's it. Gosling. So he came to Cisco and gave a talk, and I thought, wow, this is great, so I better start learning it. And then in 99, I started an e-learning company called the Chalkboard Network, and we hired a team of people to write, uh, well, they wrote the back end in Java, but we had JavaScript in the web pages that would communicate with the Java uh, on the back end, as I recall. And then the internet, we got funding about a month before the internet bust in 2000. And so at that point, we we had some angel funding. It lasted for maybe six months. We couldn't get VC funding, so I had to let the team go that developed the back end and some of the front end, and I just started maintaining it myself. The front end was actually mostly me anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, they told me what needed to be done, and I would do it. I was we had We had mostly graphics people and writers who are putting together these courses. And I was the main technical person, which was kind of crazy because I was doing way too much, but that's where I started really using JavaScript and Java uh, seriously when we let the developers go and I had to take that over. And I did that for about uh, four more years. Um, So that was the most, you know, since then I've done, I've done a lot of JavaScript but little things in web pages to make menus pop up and down. Nothing really sophisticated, I have to admit. Right. No, that makes sense. So, and we, we talked a little bit about getting into the field of software forensics and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a little bit curious because it sounds like you've been in the industry for quite a long time. Um, what do you think are the most meaningful differences or changes that you've seen over the years? Hmm. Uh, that's a good question. You know, there's been, there's a, there's a lot of stuff. Certainly the, so the open source movement is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have, you know, I, there's certain aspects of what I like and certain aspects I don't like. What I like is the availability of a huge amount of libraries and functions that I can choose from that I don't have to redevelop. Obviously, that's a great advantage. Uh, what I don't like is... I'm not 100% convinced that everything is checked reliably. Uh, I'm not always sure that somebody takes responsibility for it. And I think with some of the, uh, you know, was it the open SSL bug, for example, a mm-hmm. few years back? You know, yeah, those things. Me. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
you know, those kind of things concern me because I don't know when I'm using code how reliable it is. In fact, when I created my software forensics tool, Code Suite, it's got a function in there called Code Diff. And I originally just wanted to do a diff on some code, but I needed to output statistics and I needed to do it in a specific way. Uh, and I needed to output a database of results. So I got the diff open source code and I thought, well, I'll just go in there and modify it. And I have examined a lot of code as a forensic software analyst. I get code from all over to analyze and figure out what it's doing. And the diff code, I could not figure out how that thing worked. Uh, it, it seemed like it was so badly organized that the functionality of creating the diff was distributed throughout the entire code instead of being in a single function somewhere that, or, or at least, you know, you do this uh, edit distance calculation. There's another name for it too, but the edit distance uh, defined where strings are similar. And there was no function that did that. That was done continuously throughout the code in different sections of the code. So I couldn't modify it. And so I ended up creating my own diff function from scratch. And uh, that was really useful because I could charge for it and not have to distribute the source code. So it worked out well, but trying to use the diff code just was, it was just a mess. So, so that's, so open source is mostly it's great, uh, but I think there are some drawbacks. I think the sophistication of compilers is really amazing to me. One thing that I lament, though, two things that I, that I lament is, one, BASIC was really great to get students to understand programming, real programming, uh, and yet it was simple enough that they could just dive right into it. And the original Visual Basic, I think, was the same way. Visual Basic was my favorite tool for prototyping for years mm -hmm. because you could draw an interface and then write really simple basic code behind it. Unfortunately, even Visual Basic has gone to, well, I hate to admit this, but uh, I'm not a big fan of object-oriented code um, because it's really confusing to me. It's just I just don't think that way. I can write it but it slows me down rather than writing my own objects like I can do in C. Oh, okay. Um, you know, in C, I, I write everything as object oriented in a sense, but, but I, you know, getting the classes right and the, all the different types of classes and the relationships right. takes a lot of time for me. And I'm, I feel like I'm not writing code. I'm writing this other stuff just to get it to compile. So with Visual Basic, it used to be very simple, but they turned Visual Basic into something that's more object-oriented, or at least explicitly object-oriented, where you've got to write the classes. And, and the old Visual Basic, I could explain to students, and I did that. And they could start writing code right away. But the new Visual Basic, I can't explain it anymore. So I don't think there's a good, simple programming language that students, really young students, can learn easily. And I think that's a problem. Yep. That, that that's really interesting take on things because, you know, I hear people talking a lot about, oh, what is the, the best language for new programmers to learn, you know, and then, yeah, it's, it's basically, you know, some people are like, well, JavaScript and other people are like Ruby and, you know, or whatever. And usually it boils down to it's, yeah, which one has the nicest syntax and the most cohesive object oriented design behind it. 
Right. And uh, yeah, you know, there is some boilerplate to make that work. And it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's why do I have to do the setup in order to start writing my code? Why can't I just tell it what I want it to do and have it start doing it? But Right. And yeah. But I kind of grew up in a world where object-oriented was sort of the way things are done. And so for me, it's it's it feels a lot more natural than the way you describe it. But I can also see that, you know, a lot of these languages in the past were very procedural. It's just do this, do this, do this, store this data this way. You know? right. And so, yeah, having this structure around different parts of the code, I, I can definitely see where that just feels like, you know what, I, I'm just kind of creating boxes and, and right. instead of writing code. And what I liked about the original visual basic was that it was object oriented, but the object oriented stuff was done automatically for you. Mm-hmm. So if you drew a, if you drew a, a user interface, a window and put buttons on it, everything in that window was a single object was part of that one object, but you didn't have to explicitly write the code that says, this is an object. This is a class. This is a subclass. It, you right. just knew that, okay, this window is an object and everything I write in there works independently. You know, I don't know why they went away from that. It was frustrating. Don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting though. Yeah. And I see some stuff for kids mm-hmm. once in a while, but I think it's kind of oversimplified. I think they can learn from these games and tools that I see, but it's not mm-hmm. really writing code. It's, it's, very, it's so simple that I'm not sure they're going to be able to graduate to writing JavaScript or Java or C-sharp or anything. Yeah, again, right? It's Most of the systems that I see are visual systems, right? So you put in right. a... It's essentially, okay, here's a box that represents an if. And then here's a box that represents, you know, some function. And then there's another box that represents some other function. You know, maybe there are some other boxes that represent values. And... Yeah. So, I mean, you're kind of plugging it all together to make it work and there's some analytical thinking that goes into it. But yeah, when it comes right down to it, coding is so much more complex than that. that yeah. That I yeah. can, I can definitely see where you have your doubts and to be perfectly honest, I haven't tried any of these systems, so I can't tell you, Oh, well I did it with my eight year old and, and it worked great or whatever. Cause I just, I haven't, you know, I have an 11 year old and a nine year old and an eight year old that I've been thinking about, you know, teaching the Mm -hmm. code, but I just, yeah, I haven't done any of that. So. Yeah. And I haven't either. So I can't say for sure, but I do know that the old VB six, uh, was easy to teach kids Mm -hmm. to start writing real code. And, you know, so that's why I liked it. And again, for me, I, I'm a little bit of an unusual programmer in that I really like the simpler it is for me, the more I like it. Well, I think a lot of programmers are that way, but then it's, you know, within what paradigm, Right. So if it's so simple that you can't perform some function, then that's too simple. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to push this into the next question, mainly due out of time constraints. Cause I've, I've got to leave here in about 15 minutes. Sure. Cause I'm meeting somebody for lunch, but um, the next question is, what are you working on today? Ah, well, in addition to the uh, forensic stuff, which I do and my forensics business has been expanding. I'm happy to say, the the latest project, which kind of fits in with what we we're talking about, is a, a product called Synthos. I don't know if I've mentioned it to you before, uh, but it's S-Y-N-T-H-O-S. It's uh, a tool that automatically generates code. People can actually download it for free at 
zeidman.biz, B-I-Z. It's, and uh, it's my last name, .biz. And I've been working on this for a year. People, programmers see it and they think this is really great, but to be perfectly honest, it's hard to get them to adopt a new way of writing code. And Synthos is for embedded systems and like IoT, Internet of Things devices. The idea is that, uh, again, similar to vein to what we were talking about, right now, if you want to create an embedded system, a real-time system, you've got to get a you've either got to get an off-the-shelf operating system or you've got to write some kind of scheduler. And then you've got to coordinate all the resources. So if you've got a printer port and two different applications want to use the printer, they've both got to check, see who's using it, and then they've got to set a flag, a mutex, and, you know, this whole process. It's not complicated. Well, it can become complicated the more applications mm-hmm. you've got running. So Synthos basically says, okay, if you want to use the, and I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but it's a very simple system. It says, if you want to use the printer, just call the printer task and don't worry about anything else. And Synthos actually inserts the mutexes and semaphores and creates the, the buffers, the message buffers for passing data between applications. So the programmer just has to write the applications and then specify what kind of scheduler he or she wants and a few things about te- uh, the, the priorities of the applications, which are, you know, which take priority. And then you press a button and it writes the code that coordinates all that and produces a scheduler um, that runs on a really simple processor. Uh, so, you know, and this is what I, I, I'm surprised we don't see more of. Tools that automatically write code, seem, it seems like that's a great opportunity and I don't see as much as I would expect. Right. Well, it but sounds really, really I, interesting. Yeah, thanks. Um, is there a way that people can go check it out or is it not done yet? No, it actually has been around for a little while. Uh, we've had some projects, but to be perfectly honest, the company's had some bad luck. We chose some, we had some big customers who ran into lots of internal problems independently of us and canceled projects. So, uh, I, I won't name names at this point, mm-hmm. but, um, I mean, they canceled not just our project, but a whole bunch, but we've released it for free. And if they go to zeidman.biz, there's a link, they can sign up and get it for free. It's fully functional. It, it only runs on C code, but if you're creating, especially like an IOT device and mm-hmm. you don't, you want to cut costs and power right now, people are putting stuff on 32 bit processors running on top of Linux. And then you've got these really complicated systems that aren't very secure. Also, it's kind of relatively easy to hack into a Linux device. Uh, but ours, with ours, you just write the applications that you need, forget about the OS, and then run it through Synthos. Synthos creates the OS, connects everything together, creates the communication between these applications. And we've run on an 8-bit processor, uh, very low power, and extremely secure because it's a custom static system that's very hard if at all possible to break into when i say static i mean you you can't you can't add tasks you know linux is designed so you can add applications to it our system is designed if you've got five applications running the system is designed to run exactly five you can't put a sixth on there yep this episode is sponsored by newbie remote conf NewBeRemoteConf is a two-day, completely virtual conference 
hosted by none other than Charles Max Wood. If travel expenses are an issue or you just can't afford to be away from home for two days, then join us. It's virtual. The conference is focused on people who want to keep up with the latest in programming or just get a leg up in getting a job and getting into the programming community. We'll have speakers from all over the programming community to help you stay current in a Slack room where you can connect with speakers and other attendees in real time. We'll also have a live roundtable video chat for attendees and speakers, plus we'll provide the talk recordings to you within days of the conference. Early bird tickets are available for $150 until May 12th, and the call for proposals is open until April 28th. So come join us at newbieremoteconf.com. All right. Well, um, I'm going to push us into picks because, yeah, I'm really curious uh, just to see, you know, what what you've got going on, what you're into these days. Um, Mm. Are there things you want to shout out about? Um, you know, I was going to shout out about Synthus, but I hope everybody tries it. Like I said, it's, it's free. It's a slightly oh, yeah. limited version. that's free, but I hope they try it. Um, you know, what else can I, I'm, I'm trying to think of, uh, you know, what kind of things I'm into these days. I never think of programming stuff. I think of movies. I think that, uh, oh, one thing it. I was going to mention is, uh, I think there's a lot of great movies out there. Um, Hidden Figures. I, I might have mentioned this before. It was really great, and it has. It's about engineering, so that's always fun for us engineers to see engineers as heroes. And although La La Land did not actually win Best Oscar, uh, Best Picture Oscar, mm-hmm. I still highly recommend it. If you love '40s musicals like I do, uh, the first, the opening scene. Have you seen La La Land? No, I haven't. Okay, and I don't know if you like musicals. I, I do. Only like Okay, so the first, the opening scene in La La Land took me by surprise because I expected something very cynical, which is okay. You know, modern musicals tend to be cynical. They almost Mm -hmm. make fun of themselves for being a musical. And this one opened with this wonderful dance routine that took, singing and dance routine that took me by surprise. It was so creative. And it's, you know, you just don't, you just don't have feel good movies too much anymore. And this was, this was one that I really enjoyed. Sounds great. Um, I'm going to jump in with a few picks myself. Um, one of the first picks that I have is Facebook groups, believe it or not. Um, and I don't spend a lot of time on Facebook. In fact, I have a plugin. Maybe I'll pick the plugin too. Um, it's called Newsfeed Eradicator. And so mm-hmm. it basically hides your feed in Facebook. So if I go to the main page of Facebook, it has some nice quote on it. In fact, let me just do that real quick and I'll, I'll read you a nice little quote. There's only one success to be able to spend your life in your own way. And it's a quote by Christopher Morley. And huh. uh, anyway, and then it says newsfeed eradicator right underneath it. And then it has a link for new features. But anyway, so I don't have all of the crazy stuff that people have posted to my timeline, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I actually have to deliberately go up because otherwise it's a time suck. I mean, let's face it, you know, it's, it's <laughs> Facebook. It's a time suck. So um, if I go up to my notifications and I can see if somebody posted something, um, you know, so I get notifications that the neighbors posted to the neighborhood group and family posted the family group. And, you know, there's a Christian men's group that I'm a part of online. And so people post to that anyway. So you kind of get the picture. Um, mm. But uh, Facebook groups has turned out to be a really great way for me to connect with people. Um, it's the way that my business coach has chosen to connect with us. And I get a ton of great advice on on this. So um, it's it's been really, really a terrific way to connect with people. And then, um, 
one other thing that I'm going to pick as far as technology goes that I just really like and has been around forever is Google Hangouts. Um, I'm using Google Hangouts for the primary means of having people speak at the online conferences that I'm putting on. So this will probably come out and, you know, we're going to be talking about Angular Remote Conf and React Remote Conf. But um, yeah, so all the talks are given over Google Hangouts and, um, you know, I use another system called Webinar Jam and it's all super duper nice. And then the last pick I have, and I've kind of switched my programming over to this mostly, is Visual Studio Code. Um, you know, it has a plugin for Ruby because I do a lot of Ruby, um, which it's not a great plugin, but it works. But I like having a, a lot of the IDE-ish features without having to feel like I'm totally overwhelmed by all the features in an IDE. Mm-hmm. And then um, it works tremendously well for Angular, TypeScript, and JavaScript. So I'm I'm really, really liking that. Um, so yeah, those are my picks. Um, Bob, if people want to follow up on what you're doing, um, check out what you've got going on with your um, business or any other you know contributions out there, uh, what do they do? Uh, well, they're, they can always email me. I've got lots of emails, but the best one is probably bob at zeidmanconsulting.com. Uh, but they can look me up online and my email's out there for everyone. And I, I shouldn't say this, but I answer every email unless it's like a unsolicited sales or marketing pitch, but I answer everybody's emails. I think at, at some point I may have to stop doing that, but I know when, you know, when I was younger, I talked about working at university of Pennsylvania and we didn't have email, but I would mail people. And I was just so thrilled when somebody would write back and give me an opportunity that I, I feel that way when people talk to me, I could learn something from them. I could create a good business opportunity, or maybe they could learn something from me. So I like to communicate with people. So just uh, find my email and email me. Very cool. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. Thank you for coming, Bob. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Well, I just love the stories. You're welcome. (laughs) We'll catch everyone next week. Okay, great. Bye, Chuck. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.